Welcome to Macintosh and Mod. Haven't seen what? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Diner. A group of college-age buddies struggle with their imminent passage into adulthood in 1959 Baltimore. I've seen worse. This movie's not good. But it's not bad either. Mm, I don't know about that. I didn't hate this movie. Okay. <laughs> I did not like it. Here's where I do enjoy this movie, is that you're watching a lot of actors before they've become famous. Sure. And all of them are very fully committed. Sure. It's intentionally a small movie, and not a lot's happening. It's about these six guys, really five. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There is something slightly charming about it. It is gross, because it's set in 1959, and boys are the worst. Yeah. And I don't want to excuse that. No. But I do think that this, unlike a lot of dumb sex comedies, mm -hmm. this movie actually like has a little bit of contemplation about it compared to its its contemporaries in the 80s. It's at least like thinking about the implications of these things. Yeah, but it's like two hours of navel gazing. <laughs> Like, it really is. And I think that's the thing that annoyed me so much. Is like, we spent this much time and there was no growth of the characters. Which, I mean, that's fine. But there wasn't, like, really captivating commentary. It's only about 70% of the way to where it needs to go mm -hmm. to fully flesh out as a story. Yeah, Because I agree, you can make a movie where nobody exactly changes, but you can still make a bigger comment on what's going on. Sure. And when we talk about where everybody was making this movie, I think it's simply a factor of nobody had thought that far down the road yet mm -hmm. <laughs> in terms of creating this. It's a C movie that could have, it could have been an A but nobody was quite sure how to get there just yet. Mm -hmm. But I, I think for me, what, it, what was more interesting than anything was it wasn't raunchy just for the sake of being raunchy. Mm -hmm. It was like, no, this would be how these little twerps acted in 1955. Sure. And yes, there might not be consequences for them, but the consequences do have ripple effects in the community they're in. And do you at least get a glimpse of what those would mean. And at the very least, it feels real. None of this feels so fantastically out of the ordinary that you're just like, what the fuck are you talking about? I don't know. I got that feeling a little bit. We have a, we have a different feel on this movie. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, the budget for this movie was $5 million. Okay. That is not a large budget. For a picture in 1982, as we've mm -hmm. already talked about, Das Boat cost three times as much as this. But uh, our our main creative force behind this delivered the movie on time and under budget. It was actually budgeted for $5.5 million. Wow. Okay. Good on you. We're, we're going to get into the, the creative force behind this, but I got to say, already showing promises one of those economic directors in Hollywood. <laughs> I like it. It globally grossed $14,100,000. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That's not bad for a small return on a movie, but that's actually amazing considering that MGM almost didn't release this movie. Wow, okay. They thought it was going to be a flop because they had no idea how to market this. They were looking for something like Porky's. Sure, that makes sense to me. They expected a dumb sex comedy and instead got a lot of musings of men at a diner trying to struggle their way into their 20s, Hmm. which is a very different prospect for a movie studio. So it did almost completely get canned until Pauline Kael wrote a glowing review of the movie in The New Yorker. Hmm. And that got them to at least put it out there, but they basically just ignored it, and it still got an Oscar nomination. (laughs) This may be one of those movies, too, as we talk about it, that it's a time and place movie, that at the time... People were so blown away by like, whoa, you can just have people talking in a diner in a movie and they can just you can just have guys like dealing with each other like that's a thing you can do in a movie. And I was Mm -hmm. like, well, yeah, to what end? But I guess it is interesting how many times we run across movies where it's like they were kind of the first to do it. So it blew everyone's mind at the time. But now it just seems really dumb. There's things about the movie that I actually like. And I get that, you know. The, the guy sitting in the diner thing is new at this time. Like, it's just a movie about talking, essentially. And that's fine. But it's also, again, it's to what end? Yeah, absolutely. That is the one thing missing from this movie that would really pull it over the top. Like, I love some of the conversations that we have, mm-hmm. and the, especially the acting. I think the acting's what's so fun to watch the acting's pretty good the dynamic between our guys is great but i think the the conceit of them coming together makes sense so like we're, we're getting into writing here but the framework of we're all in town for our friend's wedding total sense pretty timeless because that's what most people do if you didn't leave after high school college you're already there So some of your buddies might still be there too, but there's always going to be those ones who left and come back. Cool. That all makes sense. But there wasn't a good, like they didn't really establish that exceedingly. Like I didn't, I could not really truly tell who left, who went on, who strived and who stayed put. Like I didn't get those dynamics about these characters particularly well. And then it was it, it just got really muddy really fast because it's like, okay, well, we're back for this wedding, but also it's Christmas. So some of these guys came early and it's just, it's really messy to me. I don't know. I, I actually got it relatively quick. I mean, I think they set them up pretty well on that front in that Billy's really the only one who actually got out of there. No, I I get that, but we also don't really establish very well other than Shrevy and then Boogie what their actual jobs are. <laughs> like those are the only two that well, those are the only two we see at work, which is fine, but the other guys don't really talk about what they're doing. And then the Kevin Bacon character is just drunk all the time, being a jackass. So there's that. And then at the end of the movie, all these guys are essentially assholes. And none of them have changed. No. There's no, with the exception of Billy, he's the only one who I think has, like, who we see, like, going through something. And Eddie's character, played by Steve Gutenberg, he, like, clearly is going on some existential crisis. So he kind of evolves a little bit. But the rest of the guys don't. 
So why are we spending so much time on them? There is a generational gap here. If this was the movie American Pie was, I would probably really, really love it because it connects to that generation. Here's the thing. This movie, and this this is not a credit to it. This is part of the issue. Sure. Is that this movie directly connects to a specific generation, a.k.a. boomers. That's what it is. No, that's fine. I recognize all of that. But we go through this whole story and two guys that we barely spent time with, one whose entire story revolves around the woman he's going to marry, whom we never see. <laughs> On purpose. Which is kind of funny, but they needed to play that joke more. And the other guys who are arguably a million times worse and had much bigger stakes, nothing changes. Nothing happens. You think the Shervy and Boogie stuff is going to explode together and put them both on a different path? Nothing happens. It's literally for nothing. But that's what life is like. I mean, I I actually like that about it. No, I'm fine that Shuri didn't find out about the whole boogie thing. But the mistake is we spend that much time on both of those stories and literally nothing happens. And what that should have been was Shervy's wife saying, we got to fix some shit. And we don't have to see the change, but we have to acknowledge that something is going to be changing for that character. And the same thing with Boogie. It's just like, I need to give up the ghost. Like he he admits to something towards the end when he gets bailed out. He's going to go do this construction thing. But then he's riding off on a horse with a chick. Like, But I guess to me, like part of it, and, and this is this is, again, never established in the script. So I, mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with you that it's messy. But I bought in from the very beginning that they're all like 19 or 20. That's the whole conceit. And to me, all of this makes sense for idiot 20-year-old dudes from Baltimore who have had all the privilege in the world because they have. Again, I get all of that. That is very clearly telegraphed. They're young, (laughs) young, dumb, and full of... That's it. And so white. So white. (laughs) But again, we spent this much time with these guys surrounding one particular thing that's happening. And there's no impact. So it wasn't, and it wasn't a snapshot because they're super interesting. This is not a good movie. There are great performances. I know that's Paul Reiser just improving the fuck because that man's a genius at that. I know it. I know it for a fact. I can see it. I watched enough Mad About You in my life. I know. I know it in my bones. But that's not writing. That's him. Everything you're complaining about is exactly what I like about this movie. This movie is crap. The, uh, the actors are fabulous. I don't think it's crap. I think it's crap. I do agree with you, however, where, where we find common ground is that it is messy mm-hmm. and it's green. And that is because this is Barry Levinson's first ever movie. He is our writer and director. <laughs> okay, well, that's that's a little bit of the problem. Before this, Barry Levinson wrote for the Tim Conway Comedy Hour, The Carol Burnett Show, worked with Mel Brooks on Silent Movie and High Anxiety, and then And Justice for All. After this, he had an uncredited writing role on Tootsie, another movie we'll be talking about in this series, 
Best Friends, Tin Men, Avalon, Toys, Sleepers, Liberty Heights, Man of the Year, and The Bay. Coming up, he will be writing Francis and the Godfather, a biopic of Francis Ford Coppola showing down with Robert Evans during the production of The Godfather. I remember hearing about this, and that's definitely one we'll want to watch. Oscar Isaac as Francis Ford Coppola, Jake Mm -hmm. Gyllenhaal as Robert Evans. That's perfect casting. Woo! And that's a movie I definitely want to see. We'll talk about his directing stuff because he's actually directed a whole lot more than he's written. Sure. This is his first movie. (laughs) Okay, here's the thing. That's fine. Yeah. He needed somebody else to come in and tie it up. Finesse, smooth some things over. I'm fine with the characters and their archetypes and the way they fit together. All makes sense. Fine. The conceit, the framework to get it there. Fine. But we go on this journey that has no payoff. That's not even interesting. I would be fine with the lack of payoff if, as you said, it was tightened up a lot more. Sure. Like, we wander with it too long, and that comes from it being a really contemplative, like, ruminating movie, but it doesn't do the greatest job of that. But the only people who are ruminating are Eddie and Billy. It's Eddie being like, do I really want to get married? I feel too young to get married. I love this girl. I'm going to put her through hell and make her go through this football test. Like he's doing that the whole movie. And then Billy, who's like, who want, he finds out this woman is pregnant. And then it's like, what are we going to do about it? Uh, Fenwick is going through hell in, in his life because of how he's been distanced from his father. Shrevy is totally fucked up in his marriage and is slowly having to realize that he doesn't know if he made a huge mistake or not. And Boogie is, like, about to get fucking killed by the mob. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on, but most of it's bullshit. Mm. Shervy is sitting there. No, he's being a dick from top to bottom. He, like, he, honestly, he's the worst one of all of them. You're not wrong. <laughs> Shrevy's not good. Shervy is sitting there feeling sorry for his fucking self. Yeah. Fenwick is an alcoholic. He is, but there is a reason for that. I don't care. He's still an alcoholic. Like, and his friends are enabling it. Yes, I know it's the time. I understand all that. But it's not interesting. He's just obnoxious. He's like Stifler, but not entertaining. You're like, this is funny for two seconds. And then it's not. And then it's never it's never funny again. But I so disagree because to me, he's Stifler with consequences. This is the actual real life what Stifler would be like and how tragic he would be as a character. I really like Fenwick as a character in this movie. No, because there I don't I don't see that there are any in fact consequences for him. Well, no, because there are no consequences for anyone in this story. <laughs> yeah. So he's just an asshole. That's not endearing. At least Boogie has a conscience in there. Like, he knows what he's doing and he knows it's bad, but he just wants to win the bet because he needs the money. I don't necessarily find any of them endearing, though. That's a problem. Mm, Okay. That's a problem. The only one who's slightly endearing is honestly Billy because he's just like, gotta deal with the shit. And like, he wants to do right by this lady. He does, in fact, like this lady. Lady's like, I got a career. I got a path. I ain't letting this derail me. We're good. Don't worry about it. And he's just like, no. 
I, I won't lie. I'm pretty charmed by Eddie by the end of the movie, even though he's the pits. <laughs> uh, he's insufferable. But here's the thing. They did give really good context for why he's acting this way. Yeah. And like why he's put this whole thing on the football test, which that should have been way more a thing with the guys. The actual scene where they're going through the test is hilarious. And I'm just like, there should have been like more quizzing. Like, are you going to ask her this question? What about this question? Oh, that's a good one. We should put that. There should have been a little bit more of that because you hear it. You're like, really? And then they do it and it's hilarious. And then it's just like, (sighs) (laughs) yeah, it's just really, it's really frustrating. I loved the wedding. Like it's Colts colors. And it's just like, that's amazing. We know Barry Levinson wrote better later on. <laughs> we did. He he needed someone else to come in and polish it up. Yeah. He needed a co-writer. He did. He needed someone to teach him what to fix. I think the problem with him being this is his first writing and then he's directing it. It's too precious. He's holding on to it too much. And I think if we had a different director, they would have one helped polish some of those out and tighten it up. You know who what we need? A better editor. That's what we There's need. that too, but I think it's more of we needed a director to be like, this scene is not going to work in this movie. Speculation has loomed for years about which one of these characters actually represents Levinson. Mm-hmm. According to him, none. Apparently, each of them represent one part of his youth all mixed together. However, in interviews, he said, if I really had to pick one that I was closest to, it would be Billy. Okay. And, um... He got a pretty good nod of approval to go make this movie because, you know, he worked with, well, a living legend, Mel Brooks, who, after working with him on Silent Movie and High Anxiety and see him writing this script in 1980, said, you need to make this. Okay. And here's the thing. A movie like this, I totally understand that it's messy and it's not perfect, but it is also the kind of movie where you go... That guy's got promise. We need to cultivate that guy. Sure. No, I don't I don't have a problem with any of that. Mm-mm. But this film is a first draft. I would call it a third draft. No. <laughs> yeah, you're wrong. Let's talk about him as a director, because this is his feature debut. He had written much before this, but this is the first time he's directed anything. Mm-hmm. After this, who? The Natural, Young Sherlock Holmes, Tin Men, Good Morning Vietnam, Rain Man, Avalon, Bugsy, Toys, Disclosure, Sleepers, Wag the Dog, Sphere, Liberty Heights, Bandits, Envy, Man of the Year, What Just Happened, You Don't Know Jack on television, The Bay, Rock the Casbah, The Wizard of Lies on television, Paterno on television, and a couple of episodes of Dope Sick, on which I believe he is an executive producer. Coming up, he's doing Francis and the Godfather and... He's going to do a television series called One Giant Leap about the moon landing from Neil Armstrong. Boom! He's worked with Al Pacino a lot. And Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. (laughs) Rivals. Yeah, no, the man knows what he's doing. And and that's fine. That's fine. Everyone's got to start somewhere. You know, clearly he got Oscar nominated for some shit. That's great. Good for you. But this is clearly the story that's very precious to him Mm -hmm. and his background's in comedy and he did not make a comedy this is not a comedy it's not and i it's a dramedy yeah it's got it's a it's a drama i mean it's a drama but he's playing the bits for comedy and that's a that's the problem that's part of the mistake and i think 
if a, a director who had more experience in drama came on this might have been like okay let's approach it that way and then we can have the lightness i don't think he takes this, this story seriously well okay so looking at the movies that he's directed that he didn't write mm-hmm. those are some of the best ones rain man and the natural we've already talked about uh-huh. on here and we've already talked about how much we really really like them yes we did he didn't write either of those yeah he didn't write good morning vietnam he didn't write bandits he didn't write wag the dog these are some of his best films yeah what's interesting is this is technically part of a loose trilogy some would say quadrilogy he's written several movies set in and around baltimore because that's his hometown sure. that's that's pretty normal so tin men avalon which i really do love avalon's a great movie and liberty heights are all set in and around baltimore from different perspectives this is the first one of those okay i think you're absolutely right and that's it's a little too precious to him and he hasn't cultivated enough of a distance from the subject to say I'm going to direct all these other movies that I really like and these projects, but then when it comes to making my movies, I really want to pull it in tight and make a movie right. about my hometown. That's what I really like. love writing about. Mm-hmm. And he's basically just telling a story about him and his buddies in the 50s, yeah. which is fine. If this were a book, it would work really fucking well. Yeah. But it's a movie. <laughs> yeah. I think you're absolutely right that somebody else needed to co-write it, but I think his directing's fantastic. I don't, I don't think he's got the script pinned down enough to flow right. There, there's too much extra roast beef on the sandwich for it to be worth it. <laughs> That's a weird way to put that, but okay. Well, it's a scene in the movie, okay? <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> it can still be weird. What he gets out of the actors and a couple of things in the trivia of how he made sure that these actors fit together really well. Mm -hmm. For somebody directing their first movie and for dealing with young actors and then having to cast those young actors out of a giant pool. Oh, sure. I can imagine. That speaks to a lot of foresight. And it's why clearly he got so much more work directing after this. Because yeah. everybody went, he's, he's got, got an eye. Whatever flaws there are here, he's got the thing that can help him make something great. Mm-hmm. I think his, his directing is far stronger than his writing here. And his eye for who would best fit these parts. It being his first time ever, his inexperience actually just fueled the energy and environment of the set. According to Daniel Stern, he was, quote, the most confident director you could imagine, especially considering none of us had any idea what we were doing, unquote. That works. According to Kevin Bacon, he actually hadn't figured out how to talk to actors yet very well. <laughs> it's just not, he w- he'd been a staff writer. Sure. And then worked alongside other people. <laughs> he was so green and so caught up in the whole process on the first day, he completely forgot to yell action or cut. That first day out. That's cute. (laughs) But here's one of his best decisions. He had the main actors arrive a week before filming started in Baltimore to get to know each other. Mm. And to help that process, they only rehearsed for one hour a day. The whole point was for them to just hang out and get to know each other. And this is apparently something Levinson has done all throughout his career. 
For him, rehearsal is a way to soften the environment and take the edge off the process. Mm-hmm. Quote, I prefer to let the actors be almost struggling with their lines and worrying about how they're going to cope with things. If, as in the case of Diner, you are selecting certain actors who are not so far removed from their characters, then they are in the ballpark already. So you want them to sneak up on that behavior without feeling they have to do lots of acting. I mean, he's absolutely right. That's the genius of him. He, he's doing the positive version of the Kubrick, where he's, I'm going to manipulate the environment in a very subtle way that's safe for everyone, but that's going to get everybody in the right frame of mind when I turn on the camera. Yeah, I want them to have this experience. Exactly. And he was like, I'm basically just casting these guys to a T to the personality. So I don't really need them to do a whole lot of digging and acting, acting. Sure. They just need to show up and kind of be on camera. And I think that's why the performances are so strong, even if the script is so weak, is he totally got that part of it. Yes. Uh, Oh, I, I completely agree with that. Of course, those youngins immediately went out on the town clubbing and trying to pick up women. Sure. They often use bogus stories about what they were actually doing in Baltimore. Love it. Supposedly, Tim Daly, he says this himself, came up with the most popular story. They were engineers working on a rooftop restaurant. As far as fake lines go, that is a chewy conversation starter. It is. That's the secret to it. Is it? <laughs> it's plausible. But there's so many directions you can go with. Yeah, that. like, ooh, why is it? Why is it a rooftop restaurant? Oh, you're an engineer. Where'd you step? Like that type of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Good. That's why it's good. I know. Love it. To add to this real thoughtfulness, Levinson opted to film all of the diner scenes at the end of filming. Oh, nice. Because he wanted them to have completely gotten used to each other and gotten to know each other Mm -hmm. before he started doing those. They did combine a bunch of scripted material and improv, Mm -hmm. which, of course, you have Paul Reiser there who's going to be the master of it. Yep. It became sort of a running competition. Bacon, by his own admission, was the least skilled at improv. Fair. While Paul Reiser was, quote, the sharpest, fastest guy alive, according to Tim Daly. Bacon, however, made the really smart choice. He said, well, my character's basically going to be half drunk anyway, and I can't really improv, so I'm just going to sit and giggle the whole time. And it worked! (laughs) Solid move. I know! Kevin Bacon, really good at acting. He is. He's a great actor. He's just, again, he's one of those actors who, again, he's got a pretty face, so some people just don't take him seriously. But he's so good. He is good. And, of course, Levinson was dealing with massive egos and lots of testosterone from these little goobers. Uh, When friction between the actors got out of hand, he ushered them to a small trailer that the cast began calling the camaraderie camper so they could sort their shit out. That's hilarious. There are like a bunch of different interviews and little documentaries. I I saw like the first couple of minutes and all of them were like, you want me to tell stories about Diner? There's there's some stuff I can't say on camera. (laughs) (laughs) They got up to some shenanigans. Yeah, it's just like the guys on Outsiders. (laughs) You know, good for them. Let's talk about that cast. Okay. A cast of relative unknowns. This is like the testosterone male version of Mystic Pizza. 
Fair. Everyone in this fucking movie went on to do a whole bunch of other stuff. Yep. Levinson auditioned over 600 different actors for these lead roles. The fact that he pulled these guys, who all went on to become some kind of movie star in their own right, is impressive as hell. He must have hired the best casting director ever. <laughs> I mean, it's just, like, it's just like Outsiders. How did you get this many people who had done nothing in one room together? I don't know, but uh, he pretty much nailed it. We start with Steve Gutenberg playing Edward Eddie Simmons. We do. We do. Who holds back the electric car? Of their sight, who rigged every Oscar night? We do. Sorry, I like I could not help myself from seeing the Stonecutter song from The Simpsons because they make fun of Steve Gutenberg and that. And then I realized David doesn't know that joke. It's no, it's sad. Before this, Steve Gutenberg was in The Boys from Brazil and a bunch of little small roles, but after this, mm-hmm. he was in The Man Who Wasn't There the Day After on television. Police Academy, Police Academy 2, their first assignment, Cocoon, Bad Medicine, Police Academy 3, Back in Training, Short Circuit, Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol, Surrender, Three Men and a Baby, Cocoon the Return, Three Men and a Little Lady, It Takes Two, Zeus and Roxanne, Airborne, Veronica Mars on television, a bunch of just random roles in a bunch of different movies, Ballers, and The Goldbergs. What do we think of Steve Gutenberg in this movie? He's a adorable what he's a an asshole, asshole. <laughs> he's a asshole but he's also he is pretty endearing because like once they give him a little context and it's like i'm scared and then we find out that he's a virgin it's like no and him talking about that is the best thing ever oh yeah because he like won't say it <laughs> he is vibrating he's so nervous to admit it mm-hmm. and i love also that boogie does not give him a whole bunch of shit about it he doesn't give him shit he's like you got a lot to learn and that's okay <laughs> that's that's fair from a guy like boogie yes that's fair but yeah he doesn't give him shit for it. it's just like all right got what we're working with here fair totally fair he is the perfect example of that character who should be just the worst and then every time you're like, God damn it, he's great. <laughs> he's just a little dipshit. He's a little dipshit and he's throwing a hissy fit and he's just being an asshole. But he, like, you know, like, you know, he's going to go through with the wedding. You're like, you know it. It's just like I have like he has to work out all this bullshit. And then also like you have to think about it. It's like the lady who loves you, who wants to get married, studied all this bullshit for you. That's the commitment. She committed to it. I love that they're like. He's going to give her two points because of the effort. You know he is. <laughs> yeah, it's just within the margin of error. I figured she would have gotten that answer. So, yeah, I'm going to go through with it. Also, you have to give him credit because everybody's got to go up against Modell at some point, mm-hmm. And he is the best. Yep. He is the only one of them who can really go toe-to-toe with Paul Reiser. He's just like their argument. Do you want to go? You don't mind. like it. Like, just say you want to ride. Do you want the roast beef? Say you want to finish that. Yeah, I'm gonna finish it. I paid for it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give it to you. No. If you're not gonna finish it, I would eat it. But if you're gonna eat it, you're gonna... 
What do you want? Say the words. No, I, go ahead. You're going to eat it. You eat it. That's all right. Say the words. I want the roast beef sandwich. Say the words, and I'll give uh, you a piece. Would you guys cut this out? I mean, every time. Anything. Well, if he doesn't talk, he just... He, well, you he know what he means, right? Yeah, I know what he means, but he beats around the bush. He beats around the bush. If he'd say the words, I'd give him a piece. If I wanted it, would I, wouldn't I ask you? No, then I ask. You know you, you just let it go? You know he wants You're it. annoying. That's I'm annoying. I'm annoying. I'm trying to eat a meal by myself. If you want to give him the sandwich, give him the sandwich. If you don't want to give him the sandwich, don't. I don't want to give him the... If well, you then just eat the sandwich. Then don't. Up. Well, look at his eyes. I ask one simple question. You get it. You know what your problem is? You don't chew your food. That's why you get so irritable. It, it like, Paul Reiser is just, like, cruising, and he's the one with road rage. He's the one with the road rage about what's happening. It's amazing, the two of them together. It's fabulous. I think what it really is, is that out of everybody, Gutenberg, and this is why Gutenberg got the roles that he did. It's like, he's such an every guy in, in your every single way. Yeah. And he's not drop dead gorgeous movie star. No. But he's so sweet and adorable that you're like, oh, God damn it. I don't even care if you're being a jerk right now. You're still cute as hell. Yeah. Gutenberg said that he poured a lot of himself into this role. Oh, yeah. He was very much at that time a macho, swaggering dude on the outside while incredibly insecure and internally conflicted on <laughs> deep down. He was very much Eddie at the Aww. time he was making this movie. Per Levinson, quote, he could be thick-headed, stubborn, appealing, and likable like Eddie. Mm-hmm. Next, we move on to someone we know very well, Daniel Stern, playing Lawrence Shrevey Schreiber. Before this, Stern was in Breaking Away, Starting Over, and Stardust Memories. After this, I'm Dancing As Fast As I Can, Blue Thunder, Daniel, Chud, Hannah and Her Sisters, Born in East L.A., The Milagro Beanfield War, The Wonder Years, My Blue Heaven, Home Alone, City Slickers, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, Rookie of the Year, City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold, Bushwhacked, Celtic Pride, Very Bad Things, Dilbert on television, Whippet, Manhattan on television, and Shrill on television. What do we think of Daniel Stern in this movie? I love Daniel Stern. As hateful as Shrevey as a character is, he's really fucking good as Shrevey. I mean, he is good. He's such a dick, and which is really against the type that we've enjoyed of him as of late. Like, he's Marv in Home Alone. And I, I mean, I love him in that, but also like he's the narrator of the Wonder Years, which is like <laughs> most of my childhood. And like I can distinctly remember hearing the end of that show in his voiceover. And it was just like, <gasps> uh, and like that's directly tied to Daniel Stern. Like that's him. That's his voice. He's the voice of Kevin Arnold. It's amazing and beautiful. And I love it. And I love Daniel Stern, and he's great in this movie, even though I fucking want to punch him in the face, but that's good acting. He does get one amazing scene, written-wise, and it's the scene where he's talking about marriage to Eddie. Yes. So, you know, I can come down here, we can bullshit the whole night away, but I cannot hold a five-minute conversation with Beth. I mean, it's not her fault, I'm not blaming her, she's great, it's... Oh, of course not. It's just we got nothing to talk about. But it's good, it's good. It's good. It's nice, right? It's nice. Yeah, it's nice. Right. 
he wants to tell him like it's going to be fine and then he's recounting all of the problems that he knows are in his marriage that he doesn't know how to deal with mm -hmm. and you're just like god damn man and like you can see you can see it written all over his face he's like fuck i think i fucked up massively and i don't know what to do about it yep that's the magic of daniel stern that's all him he's just that good at at doing stuff now let's talk about someone who's had an interesting career. Mm -hmm. It's Mickey Rourke playing Robert Boogie Scheftel. Mm -hmm. Before this, Mickey Rourke was in 1941, Heaven's Gate, and Body Heat. After this, Rumblefish, The Pope of Greenwich Village, Nine and a Half Weeks, Angel Heart, Barfly, Wild Orchid, Desperate Hours, Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man, Double Team, Another Nine and a Half Weeks, The Rainmaker, Buffalo 66, Get Carter in 2000. The Pledge, Spun, Masked and Anonymous, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, Man on Fire, Sin City, Domino, The Wrestler, The Informers, Iron Man 2, The Expendables, Immortals, and Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. Man, Mickey Rourke used to be so hot. <laughs> well, we're forgetting that he had a, a wrestling career in there. Well, boxing career. Boxing, boxing career. But also severe alcoholism. Yeah, the Mickey Rourke in this movie does not look anything like the Mickey Rourke now. But there is a subtlety to him that is still very much in today's Mickey Rourke. He has a little twinkle in his eye that has never gone away. And that makes it, that that makes him endearing and charming. Um, and I actually think it works better now that he's not as pretty. <laughs> and that man I, that feels really shitty to say i think he works a phenomenal actor he just is you know there are there are legendary stories and i don't have the list here but there are lists out there of all the movies he turned down mm -hmm. and it's like amazing some of the roles that he was offered he could have basically been tom cruise yeah like we would be talking about him the same way if he decided to go in that direction He's talked about, and he's never really done interviews about this movie. Mm -hmm. He's never been a fan of it. He doesn't like comedy. He doesn't like doing comedy. No. And he basically was like, the whole process was just a bummer for me. I really didn't like making the movie, which is a shame because he's really, really good in it. Yeah, he is. And he would be so, I mean, even now, he would still be really good in a drama that has comic elements. Sure. I mean, I still think of him in Iron Man, which he's playing the villain and he's playing kind of a ridiculous villain, but he grounds it so much. Like he really, truly does. Like he's one of the most grounded things in that whole movie because Iron Man 2 sucks. Iron Man 3 is awesome. I don't know what you people are complaining about. <laughs> but then he has like these moments where he's being very serious, but they're played for comedy and that works so well for him. It really does. Yeah, he, he just has that magic. He does have that magic, and he just as a person seems to be in just, I'm going to go in a different direction. He had his boxing career, and then I know they pulled it, like, they. I think it was The Wrestler was his, like, big comeback. His big thing is like, oh, I want to tell this story, and uh, David O. Russell was able to convince him yeah. to do this story. Well, and, and he's the perfect guy for a movie like that, sure. but, like, it's that thing of... It's not that he wasn't talented. It's that he really bucked against that system sure. that wanted to make him a movie star. Well, or put him, they probably wanted to put him in the rat pack and have him go in that direction. And I, 
Like if that's not the lane you want to be in, don't go that way. I mean, Paul Rudd did the same, something very similar. Everyone's like, right after Clueless, they're like, hey, you got to go to Hollywood and you can be this heartthrob. And he's like, I'm going to New York. I'm going to do a Neil Bloop play. Bye. Yeah. And the weird part is Mickey Rourke made like erotic R-rated films, which is just like, huh, okay, that's where you decided to go. You know, it's it's one of those things where on the one hand, you really wished you'd have gotten to see him do some of that amazingly big sure. stuff. And on the other hand, you're like, if he's happy, he's happy. Let him be happy. <laughs> I don't care. Let me people make good choices. Hopefully it wasn't too rough. I know it was r- a rough go for him, but mm-hmm. for his own personal demons. <laughs> Kevin Bacon saw him as a bit of a mentor and teacher figure on mm. set. He was so intense and skilled at being incredibly subtle. Per Kevin Bacon, quote, you're almost unable to see what he was doing while it was being shot. And then it gets on camera and it just, you know, explodes into something great, unquote. Mm -hmm. That's the thing is Rourke, the other part of his magic is he understands what it's going to look like when it prints. So while they're filming it, you might not get what he's doing. But when the director sees it on film, he's like, wow. So he has that magic element of he knows what it's going to look like when they get it on the dailies. Hmm. And that's a really hard skill. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That takes a lot of of patience and talent. Now let's talk about that guy, Kevin Bacon. I'm not going to go through his credits. He's Kevin fucking Bacon. We've talked about him on this show before. We've talked about him on the show. And also, Kevin Bacon. He is the center of the Hollywood universe. They made a whole game about it. Like, come on. Mm-hmm. What do we think of Kevin Bacon in this movie? I mean, he's a real jackass. He plays that well. I hate his character, but he plays it well. <laughs> I think part of the reason I wound up liking this character and liking what was brought to it is because Kevin Bacon poured and committed to it. Mm-hmm. And he committed to it on all fronts. To me, probably more than anything, his performance paid off scenes like when he goes to see his brother. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, started to flip Fenwick for me, where I was like, oh, oh, yeah, he's a total shithead. But, like, he's been through some fucked up shit. Mm-hmm. Like, and not in that deeply fucked up way, but in the fucked up way in which it'll mess with your head so bad that you'll just want to drink yourself to oblivion way. Yeah. He brought that, and I think it's he's fully committed to being this character. So after a while, for me, I went, oh, I don't just see you as the two-dimensional awful dude. I see you as a guy who's going through some shit. And unfortunately, I don't know if you're going to pull out of that, but I do see it from him. And I Mm -hmm. think that's mostly him (laughs) more than anything. But that's me. I don't know. Bacon basically bet the farm on this movie. He was working on Guiding Light at the time and decided Mm -hmm. not to renew his contract. This was the only prospect he had open. Worked out okay for him. On the day of the audition, he had a fever of 104 with the flu. He had every intention to read for Boogie and Billy, Mm -hmm. but he was so spaced out and drugged up that he decided, well, I might as well go for Fenwick the way I feel. Mm Mm-hmm. And that got him the role. (laughs) Next up, we have Tim Daly as William Billy Howard. This is his feature film debut. 
after this, he did a lot of television until he landed the role of Joe Hackett on Wings. Became a household sensation, then he appeared in Dr. Jekyll and Miss Hyde, The Associate, The Object of My Affection, From the Earth to the Moon, played Clark Kent and Superman on Superman the Animated Series, and has done a lot of other voice work, played Dr. Pete on Private Practice, and is in Madam Secretary. I forgot he was in Private Practice, but I I grew up watching him on Wings, and I loved him. I always thought he was really cute. He's still really cute here. That man has barely aged. <laughs> like, he really hasn't. He's great. I really like his I like his character. And he does a good job of not making him, like, just... He doesn't come off as naive. Billy could so easily be a cardboard cutout. Yeah, and he's he doesn't feel that way. And that's, that's to do with Tim Daly. He feels just as real and involved a character as the other guys. And he actually, like is invested in making this character work. So, mm-hmm. like, you can't fault him at all for that. That's that's impressive to take what's essentially just a dumb romantic lead and make it, like, three-dimensional and sophisticated and match the energy of the real strong personalities from the others. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he can throw a fucking punch if he needs to. Yes, he can. That's important. It's very important. We then have Ellen Barkin as Beth Schreiber. Before this, she was in Up in Smoke, and after this, Tender Mercies, Daniel, Eddie and the Cruisers, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, Down by Law, The Big Easy, Sea of Love, This Boy's Life, The Fan, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Drop Dead Gorgeous, She Hate Me, Ocean's 13, The New Normal on Television, The Cobbler, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and Animal Kingdom. What do we think of Ellen Barkin in this movie? She's great. She's fantastic, because she has to stand toe-to-toe with those guys, without giving up her personality. Yep. That's impressive shit. Mm-hmm. She's fabulous. Which is also like, well, there's a reason you became a movie star after this, clearly. She's fabulous. Barkin wasn't a part of the boys club, but she actually got along really well with them. Gutenberg said that she was actually, quote, really cool to talk to, and she actually set him straight about some of his own hangups with women. Good. She has stated that Beth is the character closest to how she has ever felt in real life Hmm. compared to any role she's ever played. And finally, we must mention, I'm not going to go through all his credits because he's so recognizable, but this is the film debut of one Paul Reiser as Modell. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) He's so fucking great. He's just, he's Paul Reiser. He's amazing. I love him. He's like proto Jerry Seinfeld almost. Mm-hmm. The the cool thing about watching Riser in this is that he's being Paul Riser, except that he also has two or three character ticks that he has latched onto. Mm-hmm. And something he does the same thing in Aliens. When you watch Aliens and you're like, most of the time you're being Paul Riser, but also you've really latched on as an actor. To this whole, you're the corporate chill thing. Mm-hmm. That's what's amazing about him as an actor, as opposed to just being a comic, is he really understands how to be like, my personality is what got me here, but I'm going to make sure I put the bit of the role into it to make it work really well. Yeah. Here's a fun fact. He had no plans on auditioning for this movie. <clears throat> he drove a friend to the audition. And while he was waiting, he was persuaded to audition. (laughs) That's funny. Who could have been better 
Arliss himself, Robert Wool. Okay. Also a very funny guy. A little bit more of a loudmouth. Yes. He would not have matched as well with Steve Gutenberg because they both have the same energy. Mm-hmm. Riser's so much better because he's just like sitting there like, oh, I'm just going to dig. No, you know. I'm, I'm the contrast is very much needed. And that is it for our giant main cast. We only have a few Arpons here. We have Herb Levinson as the Emerson black and white console television customer. This is Barry Levinson's uncle, who his nephew executive produced Homicide Life on the Street, and Herb was a series regular on that show. Okay. Good times. And we have Michael Tucker as Bagel. He had a long run on L.A. Law and was also in D2. Okay. So there you go. Now for awards. Awards. Are you ready to get mad? Sure. It was nominated for one Academy Award. It's for writing, isn't it? Best original screenplay. <sighs> I th- He was doing something new and different <laughs> and people liked it. So I understand it. I don't like it, but I understand it. <laughs> okay. You're not, you're not mad. You're just disappointed. Yeah. He, we can do better. I will give them this. It might not be best, but it is definitely original. It is definitely original. I'll give it there. There you go. Cool. And now on to trivia. Trivia. According to Barry Levinson, the infamous football quiz was something that one of his actual cousins did to his fiance. That guy should be punched in the face. (laughs) But if he did that to his wife, he has been. Per Kevin Bacon, Steve Gutenberg used to eat, quote, incredible amounts of food, unquote, and drink milk constantly. Oh, God. (laughs) Nope. That poor man's stomach. Apparently, Richard Egan, the director of A Summer Place, the movie where the infamous popcorn scene occurs, sued MGM over it being used in this movie. Hmm. They neglected to pay him for using scenes from the film and he sought about $115,000 in damages. Fair. Oops-a-doodle. MGM just paid no fucking attention to this movie. Yeah, they That's did. a problem. And the Fells Point Diner was actually located on a hilltop at the junction of Rogers Avenue and Risertown Road in Baltimore. The movie diner was actually moved further downtown, and in 2002 was converted to a job training facility. The diner was actually rented from New Jersey. From a Jersey diner company that made, oh, wow. like, mobile transportable diners. Sure. They set it in Baltimore, and once complete, it actually went back to New Jersey first, but a local Baltimore radio station had a massive campaign to get the diner back in Baltimore where it should be, Aww. so it now sits behind City Hall, where it is that that sort of job training facility. That's cool. I know! Here's our little landmark. Ratings. Ratings. For every film, we have an individual rating system for this movie. Are we going to do popcorn buckets? No. No. Roast beef sandwiches. Oh, so good. Mm-hmm. That whole scene, it just keeps going and you're like, just are they going. ever going to stop fighting about Like the somebody hit beef? somebody, please. This is going on too long. <laughs> but it's, it's hilarious. I mean, in a good way. In the best way. Neither of us have seen this movie. Diana, do your damage. How many roast beef sandwiches are you giving this film? Two. Mm. It's not worth the time, except for Paul Reiser's silliness and Steve Gutenberg being endearing. So let's cut everything else out of the movie and I don't care. I'm going to give it three. Of course you are. I like this movie. 
You're bad. <laughs> no, it's not perfect. In fact, it's it's a mess. But it got me with the characters. It got me with the, the dynamics. And it did get me a little bit with the way that it, you know, didn't resolve. I actually kind of like that. I get, though, uh, it's going to be a frustrating watch for some people. But I just be like, give it a chance. If you hate it, you hate it. But if you really do like it, I, I think you'll you'll really fall in love with it. So three, three roast beef sandwiches for me. All right. Well, you ready to make another real sharp turn in another direction? Sure. Where are we going next? We're going to watch a movie from the Greek director, Costa Gavras, known for his documentary style of fictional filmmaking about a man kidnapped in Chile, ripped from the headlines type movie. Okay. We're watching a movie that I can tell you is pretty much lost to time, apparently. Even okay. the Criterion Collection doesn't have it anymore. Weird. It's a movie called Missing. Okay. I've seen one of Costa Gavras's other movies. I really enjoyed it. It was mm. super, like, fun thrillery because of that whole documentary style. Mm -hmm. So I am very curious about how this movie shakes out, especially based on the pretty two awesome actors at the helm of this interesting i don't know this one this one is so weird but the fact that it's not anywhere is bonkers to me but before we go we saw a new movie this week we did we did we saw the tragedy of macbeth a scottish lord becomes convinced by a trio of witches that he will become the next king of scotland and his ambitious wife supports him in his plans of seizing power it looks really cool it's not <sighs> okay Part of this is pet peeve for William Shakespeare lover me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I hate when we do an adaptation of Shakespeare and we just throw all the words out. I hate it. I hate it so much. And this whole thing was, it's like a film student's thesis film. So, Oh Brother Where Art Thou is amazing. And it's mm -hmm. an adaptation of the Iliad. And... I suspect a lot of people are going to go see this film thinking oh, he's done something like that to Shakespeare and we're doing it in black and white and it's otherworldly. Nope. I mean, it's beautiful and well-performed, but it has no flow. There's no tension at all in this film. Macbeth is very tense and overwrought. It just is. Because also a Shakespeare lover, we both took that course in college. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have a thesis about it, whatever. Like, it's a big deal. And it's just like, it's kind of like you missed the point of this story. Oh, he totally did. He totally fucking missed it. I feel like, and I said this after we walked out, that I thought it would have been better if they just did a plain English translation and that the only thing they kept in the original language was the witches because what they do with the witches is fucking cool that's the best part of the whole movie yeah she's fucking phenomenal there there are two things he's doing so much pulling from like mid-20s to early 30s german expressionist film he's mm -hmm. pulling so many references and like i can see him doing it that's a really cool style to do macbeth in sure. it really is or any shakespeare but why? Why did you choose that? What was the purpose of that? Mm -hmm. Other than you just wanted to make a German expressionist movie. 
which is fine. But for me, it always comes back to when you're doing Shakespeare, the choices you make need to serve the script you're doing. That should generally be true of most things, but especially for Shakespeare, it's all about the fucking words. And if your style is not matching that Mm -hmm. and your actors have no concept of the same universe as each other, Mm -hmm. which is a big fucking problem in this movie, it falls apart. I wouldn't call it like terrible and it is gorgeous. It's going to get those technical things. It's not very good. I understand if Denzel gets nominated for this because, you know, he's Denzeling it up. But man, it just none of it works together cohesively at all for me. And it's very, very disappointing. <laughs> yeah, I really hope he doesn't because, yeah, he's not interesting at all. I mean, I love Denzel. It's it's all about Catherine Hunter, who plays the witches. Um, I just looked her up because I was like, who is that lady? I need to know her name because she's the shit. It's from Rada. It's just cool. Yeah. All right. Ah, do better movies. Until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.